Welcome to the Wealth Edit Podcast, a place where talking about finances is only polite. We talk to women and hear the stories behind how they have built their beautiful lives, whether that be inside or outside the home. I'm Emily Glaster, and on the show, Lauren and I are interviewing Allison Fryden. Allison is the co-founder of the groundbreaking Museum of Graffiti located in Miami, Florida. Allison shares with us a little bit about her professional journey from attorney to the museum and also about the time and commitment it takes to turn your passion into a business. Hi, everybody. We're so excited to have Allison from the Museum of Graffiti um, on our Wealth Edit Wednesday call. For Wealth Edit Wednesdays, what we do is we highlight an interesting woman that we've met along the way and just hear her story. So we met Allison actually through the Wealth Edit's first pivot fund. And so that's how we learned about the work that she's doing. So anyway, um, Allison, we just want to turn it over to you. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today. So why don't you just kind of tell us your story a little bit about how you got to where you are right now? Sure. Well, first of all, and first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, it's an honor to be included in um, your amazing group of women that both tune in and participate in the Wealth Edit. So I really appreciate that. Um, my name is Allison Frieden. I'm from Miami, Florida. Um, I went to Tulane University until the dreaded Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And that was one of my first experiences learning kind of how to pivot. And I kind of went over this um, with a bunch of the women in the wealth edit at the time of the application process um, that, you know, having to deal with tragedy and disaster in the middle of college um, and kind of being uprooted and a displaced student, um, I kind of started my journey on, you know, out of my parents' house on, on a rocky foot. Um, I ended up finishing my undergraduate degree at University of Miami. I went to law school and ultimately graduated um, at the very height of the recession. So uh, coming out of law school and looking for a job, my first ever full full-time job, you know, when you're seeking a career instead of just like, you know, a job to, to get money in your pocket here and there between, between a couple things. Um, so, you know, I, I graduated at the height of the recession, so it, there were no jobs. And again, you know, I kind of found myself thinking, how can I get creative? You know, the government is always going to be um, always going to be hiring. And so I started looking for jobs within the government. You know, the government has to run even in a recession. And so I ultimately got a job at the state attorney's office um, as a prosecutor out of law school. Um, I really quickly rose the ranks and started um, a gun violence task force um, that um, where I would went into the inner city and kind of I, I worked in house at the Miami Dade Police Department. Uh, in order to find creative ways to combat the uh, juvenile homicide epidemic that was happening in Miami at that time. Um, I became very immersed in um, street culture at that time. You know, I was, I was in a different part of, the, of Miami than I had ever been before. 
I had always been, always for my entire life, really into the arts. And, um, you know, I, I served six years as a prosecutor and on that gun violence task force as a public servant. And um, ultimately, I left um, because I really wanted to pursue kind of a position in public service, but also really hone in on what I was passionate about, um, which was the arts. So from there, I, um, you know, I got some corporate experience. I, I started as general counsel of a, um, of a company, a very uh, fastly growing, very big company. It's, it's big in dollars and very tiny managed. It was a very boutique type of firm that I worked for called Global Pro Recovery. And I, you, I ultimately became vice president of that company the whole time while I was building the Museum of Graffiti. Um, and the Museum of Graffiti is the first museum of graffiti in the entire world dedicated to the graffiti art form. It's located in the heart of Wynwood, which is the street art capital of America. And um, that's where I am today. I come to you from sunny Miami and I'm in the office, um, kind of the behind the scenes portion of the museum. No, that's an amazing story. And I, when you and I were talking um, last week, you discussed how you knew you wanted to go into the business world, into, you know, working with the arts in a for-profit sort of way and how you strategically sought out a position within a corporation to learn how a business was run. I, I think that's fascinating. Did you work sure. jobs at the same time? Oh yeah. So, so that's, is one thing is that, you know, if you want to open a startup, um, you know, startups take a lot of time, a lot of money. Um, I certainly could not launch a startup without maintaining a job, another full-time job. So yeah, I, I would wake up in the morning. I would be at global pro as their VP and, and GC um, from about 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then I would start working, uh, or maybe 5 p.m. And then I would start work building the museum 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. every day for a pretty long time. That sounds a lot like what we're doing. I, that's what I said. We can relate. <laughs> but you know, I think that's an important thing to say because building a business is a lot of hard work. Um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's also so rewarding at the same time. And just to acknowledge that some, sometimes is freeing, you know, like, you know, I guess at first I was questioning myself, should this be easier? Am I making this more difficult? And really just by definition of doing that, it's usually pretty hard, you know? And I think anything, anything that's worth doing is, yeah. is hard, you know what I mean? And that's, it's so funny because a lot of times I read these articles on the internet and it's like, Hey, make sure to like set all these boundaries and do all this stuff. But like, honestly, I've never no. known any woman who set like a ton of boundaries that's been, you know, inordinately successful. So I don't know, but well, I would like to talk to her. And, and that's what shit. I mean, because I feel like people were saying that kind of behind the scenes and I'm like, am I, am I? doing this incorrectly like what am i missing you know and then finally i realized no it's just a lot of hard work it's just a lot of hard work there are no boundaries in my life i will be you know um on camera up here walking the dog on a cell phone like you know i have you know organizing a, my car getting washed it's just my whole life 24 hours a day i am i'm pretty busy 
Um, you know, now that I've launched the museum, you know, I, my next, um, st I can't stop, you know, my next step is how do I grow this? Um, what's the, what's on the horizon for us? Um, you know, what's next for me as an individual, um, you know, keeping in touch with the charities that I volunteer for and making sure that those are getting the attention they need during the COVID crisis. So there's no such thing as boundaries in my life. I take phone calls at two o'clock in the morning the yeah. same way I take them at 7 a.m. Um, that's, that's the life that I've chosen for myself though. And it's not for everyone. That's true. It really isn't. And it's good to know that about yourself, that like this is something that you're really committed to and that you're able to do it. And you're right. Some people, it's just not, it's not in that entrepreneurial DNA, which is, that's okay too. Sometimes right. And, and that's what I want to like express to, to women is that, you know, I, I feel like I get that feedback a lot. Like, wow, I'm, I'm so impressed. How do you do it? And I say, you know what? I don't know what it's like to have three kids at home. I don't know how you do it. You know, I don't know what it's like to be, you know, you know, working inside the house, preparing meals, cleaning floors. Like that's not my life. And just because my life is challenging. It doesn't mean that, you know, anyone else's is less challenging. It's simply different. And, and, you know, we each have to be really true, uh, look deep inside of yourself and decide what you want. Um, and this is what I wanted and it took me some time to get here. Um, but you know, it's really up to that and to be able to make a change if you're unhappy. Yeah. Well, who do you think in your life kind of like helped shape your work ethic? Cause obviously it's really strong. <laughs> um, my parents for sure. Um, I think, um, I had a, I, you know, grew up in a household with two working parents. Um, both of them were extremely dedicated to their jobs. Um, and, um, it, it was just, the way that we were raised, uh, if I wanted to have a car, um, obviously, you know, working at 14, 15 years old, the type of money you get, you're not going to probably be able to have a car. It was never the finances. It was the work ethic behind it. Like they wanted um, to see that, you know, I understood that money didn't grow on trees and you had to go out and make your money. Um, you know, my mom was always wheeling and dealing in, in her profession. It wasn't necessarily about the money. It was about making sure you feel productive. Mm -hmm. Um, additionally, I think also that, you know, despite how much of an impact my parents have had on my work ethic, I think that, that it, it's something in your DNA. Um, you know, it's the old nature versus nurture discussion, you know, like, yes, my parents certainly, um, nurtured me into really believing in hard work, but I think it's something like I wake up excited to do this every day too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift gears just a little bit and start talking about the museum and how the idea was born to have a museum of graffiti. Is it the only one in, I know it's the only one in the United States. Is it the only one in the world? That's dedicated? So there is one in Berlin um, that is also street and urban art together. We are the only one in the world that's exclusively graffiti art. So um, the way that we distinguish graffiti art uh, um, from street art is that um, graffiti art is really predicated on the formation of the letter, um, how much style you have in your handwriting and the fonts that you use. 
And that's kind of how we differentiate street art and graffiti. So we are the first museum of graffiti in the world. We are one of two that focuses on the aerosol art form. The other one is in Berlin. Um, this concept came about in, um, I would say early 2017 um, or maybe late 2016, probably early like January, 2017. Um, when I met my business part, my current business partner, Alan Kett, um, Alan has been a lifetime graffiti writer. He's also a um, historian on the subject matter. He's an author on the subject matter. And, um, and I met him. He, was down, he came down from New York City to work at the infamous or the famous Wynwood Walls. Um, he was the director of their gallery operations. And, you know, I, I, was, I was representing legally uh, in, in a legal capacity, um, some street artists and graffiti artists at the time, because, you know, I was just doing it kind of uh, almost on a pro bono basis because it, I was always just so passionate about this that I wanted to like get my foot in the door somehow. And, and I was able to offer my services that way. And that's kind of opened doors for me to meet other artists and graffiti artists um, through that. So that's how I met Alan. And um, Alan and I would spend some time together discussing art and, um, you know, the community. And we both felt like, um, Alan felt like, you know, this, this specific art form has been marginalized. Nobody's paid it the attention that it deserves. And I came from it in a standpoint of, look what the artists have done for this particular neighborhood in our community. So just to back up a little bit, Wynwood was a sleepy industrial neighborhood that I had never even heard of, even despite the fact that I am third generation Miami. It's 20 minutes from my house. No one ever spoke of Wynwood. They didn't call it Wynwood. Um, all of a sudden, 10 years ago, the artists came in, made the buildings beautiful. Um, they, they made them vibrant and colorful, edgy and trendy. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden over the course of a short five years, you know, right here in the middle of Wynwood, we went from, you know, industrial sewing warehouses that no one paid any mind to, to the most expensive real estate in all of Miami, um, solely because of the artists. And I found there it to be very disturbing that you would come to this neighborhood and there's nowhere to have any education whatsoever about the artists, about their art form, about the technique, about the history of the neighborhood. Um, and so Alan's goals about, you know, really honing in on the pioneers of the graffiti movement and my goals of, you know, singing the song of unsung heroes who have developed communities um, came together and the Museum of Graffiti came alive amazing I mean that is an amazing story and how do you think because even growing up I mean I feel like it's interesting and I'm just you know we just talk very openly here but like I remember in the 80s when I was a tiny child it was like graffiti was seen as kind of not great like it wasn't it wasn't celebrated but now I feel like it really has marked there's like graffiti has always been there it's marking these different passages of time and, and it's 
really in this sort of wonderful place right now in our history, but, but how do you think it marks the passage of time? Tell us kind of the evolution of graffiti over the decades. So I have a couple things to say, like, you know, about what the, your experiences and, and I also like when I hear you talk about, um, you know, feeling like in, in the eighties and the nineties, that this was kind of shunned and looked down upon and, you know, people associated with gang members and, um, you know, I would encourage everybody who's listening to think about how they felt about marijuana during that time, yeah. you know, and, and it's really, um, a, a an evolution of social norms, you know, you're fighting and fighting and fighting, for instance, this war on drugs, they're fighting the, the war on graffiti, um, because it's, it's counterculture, it goes against the norm, it's, it's a change, it's, it's an evolution. And there's fears of change, right? Um, and, you know, people like the way they know things, it's safe. Um, so I think that these artistic, revolutionary, um, you know, forward thinking concepts sometimes, you know, are pushed by, pushed through by a very adventurous few, um, some rule breakers. Um, and ultimately, it just takes society uh, a while to catch on. And, um, you know, graffiti has the potential to reinvent a struggling neighborhood and make it a worldwide art destination. Um, if you know, if you can have that vision, um, the same way, you know, marijuana is, is curing cancer, um, and, and doing really positive things for folks with anxiety and eating disorders and, and you name it, it's just, um, you know, it takes a while for people to wrap their head around, around things that are sometimes counterculture. Mm -hmm. So um, if you visit the museum, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience is? Does it walk you through the history, through some of this history and point out some of these things to be thinking about when you're looking at the different? Yes, um, and, and you know, I wish I did a screen share. I, I should have thought of that in advance, but I didn't. Um, we'll have so, you on. <laughs> what's that? We'll have you on again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I feel like already I'm talking too much. So um, basically, when you come into the Museum of Graffiti, um, you will experience the exhibition in chronological order. You start in the 1970s learning about the very early pioneers and how this was really started off as a children's movement. You learn about how um, the individuals in New York City who were kind of the first to um, experiment with the art form had very rudimentary styles. They were using tools that were um, intended to mark boxes or create signs. They were very commercial tools um, and they made them into uh, art tools. Um, they, you know, they would make, uh, they would take a shoe polish container, put ink in it, put the shoe polish container back on and use it as kind of like a, a big, thick, sponge brush um, and really did some DIY things to to create this outside art form um, a public uh, art in public spaces um, you know and you you certainly learn about that whereas and you kind of take the journey through time you go into the 1980s when all of a sudden um, graffiti is no longer in just public spaces and is being um, 
you know, put onto canvas and, and goes into the galleries for the first time. And that's where you see Herring and Basquiat and, and some of the greatest artists of our time um, who have sadly passed on. But you see um, some of these guys, you know, do their first gallery shows. Everything we have in the museum is authentic. We have a mixture of artwork with ephemera. So you're going to see the artwork from the gallery shows and then there will be cases that have the actual invitations, the flyers, the dance parties, the, um, you know, the DJ set lists, things that were all going on in the 1980s at that time. You'll see that throughout the exhibition that it's a mixture of art and ephemera um, as you go through it. And, um, you know, we you would take the corner, you'd go into the 1990s and see kind of when graffiti goes viral. Um, it was a big um, trend in the early 70s to paint, for graffiti artists in New York City. It was almost a rite of passage to paint on the outside of a subway train. What you see in the 1990s is all of a sudden uh, graffiti artists are now painting on freight trains. So what that means is not now you're your name is not just moving around the five boroughs of New York City. When you get your name on a freight train, it's now going across the entire country. So, um, you know, it's no longer isolated to big cities like New York, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles. It, it's passing through every nook and cranny uh, within the United States and really you know, simultaneously we see an explosion of graffiti in the mass marketplace um, and, you know, the emergence of skate decks, sneakers, apparel, um, vinyl collectibles, uh, um, you know, record album, album covers. And, and we really go through that whole timeline um, from the 1970s into the 1990s um, when all of a sudden you start seeing companies market uh, art products directly to graffiti artists. So they're no longer using, uh, you know, the old school DIY or making, converting special markers into different types of markers. Uh, they now have many, many companies vying, trying to get their business with different spray cans and spray tips and, and markers. And, and it's really amazing. And one of my favorite parts of the entire museum is um, that in the back of the museum, we have two rooms um, that are comprised of a, it, it can either be one or two exhibition spaces. Um, right now we have two exhibitions that rotate. Um, those exhibitions provide current living artists an opportunity to show their work. So many graffiti artists have been marginalized from mainstream institutions and mainstream galleries. Um, and what we have done is provide them with a gallery space in the back to sell their work. So we are curating top notch, top level graffiti art shows um, that gives our visitors the opportunity to start their collection, add graffiti art to their collection, um, you know, helps them in the decorating process of their home or office. Um, also, that exhibition space is used for site-specific installations. Um, even if an artist isn't trying to um, sell their artwork, they can come in and we provide them a space to create an, an immersive installation. Right now, 
we have a bunny kitty room. Uh, bunny kitty is a fictional character. Um, it's a kitten who wears a bunny rabbit costume and she sits in a neon black light room that you wouldn't even believe. Um, that was installed by an artist by the name of Persuay and he, we gave him the avenue to make his dreams come to life and you walk in and you're fully immersed in this like, bunny kitty's dream state room. And um, just like any other um, museum, we do have a gift shop. I happen to think ours is better than anyone else's in the entire world because of uh, the programming of our gift shop. We do sell um, affordable fine art. Our print program is amazing. It's vibrant. There's uh, collectibles that you cannot find anywhere else in the world. We have exclusive deals with so many artists. This is work that you know, even the MoMA isn't doing, you know, to, to get these licensing deals with, with uh, these artists and working hand in hand day to day. And that's really where a lot of my legal expertise comes in and running the museum is a lot of licensing deals, copyright issues that come up every day, uh, leases, et cetera. Yeah. And can we take is, um, I have a couple of questions, but can we take a virtual tour? Is that an option now or no, not yet? So that's a great question. Um, when you come into the museum, you can now hold up your phone and get and use QR codes because of COVID. We can't give tours um, person to person, but you can when you're in. So once you're inside the museum, you hold up your phone to any of the exhibitions and it'll start talking to you. Artists who actually made the pieces will start talking to you via your cell phone. And additionally, we have on our website, a self-guided tour where you can walk the maps, uh, I'm sorry, walk the outside walls. So part, our exhibition, I guess I didn't cover that, is both inside and outside. So we have uh, 16 um, murals that we've commissioned and curated. Um, and so you can actually download and print and see those walls, you know, even if you guys are, Anywhere in the world, you can take a look at that map, see the walls, see where they're located, see the artists that made them. So I guess what's something that's on the horizon, though, is for the museum is that everyone in the wake of COVID especially wants to come visit and see it. And, and right now it's not available online, but hopefully it's something that we're working on and I'd love to be able to offer that. Awesome. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually got to go... Um, just for our listeners, I got to go over Christmas and it's amazing. So I hope that everybody will get the chance to go down there and see it. And my children, I have 13 and 15 year old girls, just were amazed by it. So it's very engaging. I love it. All right. So as we kind of get close to our wrap up time, just we are a community that loves to talk about money and just what would maybe be your top financial tip or uh, thought about running your own business that you would give to our membership, just that you've learned through all the different avenues of your career? Sure. Um, I think that you need to look at what the return is on every dollar that you spend. What are you getting for this? Um, and, and be honest with yourself. Are you, you know, for, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, right now we are in production on a puzzle you know, in obviously COVID time, and I've probably mentioned COVID 10 times during this already, but you know, I'm, I'm in the process of creating our first 1000 piece puzzle of a huge Winwood wall. It's a beautiful mural that we commissioned. 
um, and I'm so excited about it. But you know, for what would normally not cost as much to the Museum of Graffiti because of the uptick in shipping from overseas, it's all done. Um, it's all market. It, it's it's a market rate for shipping. So overseas shipping is a lot about supply and demand. And right now the supply is very high. Um, and there's very low, I'm sorry, right now the demand is very high and there's very low supply. You know, people are not as eager to, to cross the ocean right now or to fly flights internationally. Um, so, you know, I had to look at how much I would spend on this. I wanted to make the puzzle no matter what. I thought this was the coolest thing. It was so cool. I needed to have this puzzle, but uh, you know, this is going to pop. Um, and you really need to look at what you're going to make on the return on the puzzle. Like, is it worth it to spend, let's just say a thousand dollars in order to really only make $1,500 back and to go through the work of this process when is my time best spent somewhere else? Um, the answer is it depends because what if dropping this puzzle gets me another thousand Instagram followers or 1500 or 2000 Instagram followers or now what if all of a sudden there's a hundred families who are now around the country working on museum of graffiti puzzles in their home and someone comes over. And so is this really just the $1,500 that I'll make in profit off the product? Or is this also a marketing expense for us? Mm -hmm. So um, I would encourage you to really just look at what the return is on every single dollar you spend for the company, because sometimes, you know, it seems really cool to have certain branded things or whatever. And, and obviously I love branding. I love packaging, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, how much do you want to spend on shipping or make the shipping cheaper to your consumer? Do they care about packaging as much? I would just look at what you're going to get in return for every single dollar you spend. And that's my best tip. That is a great tip. Well, Allison, thank you so much. We are so happy. And so how do they, they can follow you on Instagram, Museum Please. of Graffiti. Please follow Museum of Graffiti. Please check out our online store. Um, it's our online, you can get to everything through um, museumofgraffiti.com. Um, and right now, one thing that we've developed um, is a membership program where, um, because a lot of people can't come into the museum physically right now, we have a password protected part of our website where we release exclusive content where you can probably see very soon that um you know virtual tour and it, it will be for members um you know that password protected site does exist on our website right now where we do exclusive drops limited edition stuff content you name it um it's just getting creative in the in the time of covid and i would encourage everybody to you know check out our online store become a member follow the museum of graffiti on instagram and and thank you so much for having me here Oh, sure. We actually had one question come in just a second ago. Okay, so we'll ask you this just before we part. So what's been the most unexpected part of opening the museum other than COVID? Handling the, the press, the media. Really? Um, that has been really, really challenging um, in the sense of, you know, I, I wasn't prepared for how open and how public the business would become. You know, I, ha I thought that this was a good idea, but I really had no idea that 
you know, we would be in the New York Times, CBS Saturday morning. I'm actually filming for NBC National tonight because of our Black Lives Matter mural. Um, it, it's it's very challenging to, you know, I, it's a lot of pressure on me to always, to as a business owner, to also be the spokesperson for that company. Obviously, you know, all the companies that, you know, have PR folks, but they're the ones behind the scenes. And, you know, I always want to do my company justice and, and really make this all about the artists because that was the intention of the project. And um, I think that that handling a lot of the very, very, very positive attention, it, it's it's a lot on my shoulders. Um, you know, I, I feel totally confident about the business side of things. I feel totally confident about our customer service and our customer experience. It's really just, um, you know, get being able to articulate what this museum means to me, what it, what this museum means to the artists, how the artists have contributed all in like a 30 second sound bit. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly I'm long winded. So it's, it's challenging. <laughs> no, that's no. awesome. Well, we are just so glad to visit with you. We can't mm -hmm. wait to visit in person. I know we've told you that um, in the past through the Pivot Fund too. And um, so anyway, we're grateful to have you as a friend of the Wealth Edit and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Alex. Always. I can't wait to meet you ladies in person. See you. Bye. All right. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you want to learn more about our website, please check us out at www.wealthedit.com. The Wealth Edit is an online membership-based community for women looking to confidently discuss and expand their knowledge of personal finance. Our community provides a space for women of all ages to gather, learn, and plan their financial journey through virtual courses, weekly guest speakers, and educational content.